It's nearly 12 o'clock, and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thank you for listening to KMXT. On 100.1 FM, we are your public radio station here in beautiful downtown Kodiak, Alaska, where we have overcast skies, 56 degrees, 93% humidity. Out at the airport, they are showing east winds to 14 miles per hour and 8 miles of visibility. Coming up on the Midday Report, Kodiak's Handbell Choir, the Isle Bells, are looking forward to a real concert season this year. Decisions will be made soon about whether to proceed with the Donlin Gold Mine. And Bristol Bay Principal may end up with a lot less hair after he made a bet earlier this year. That, but plus how the Kenai Peninsula Borough School District is handling no more free school lunches provided by the federal government. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The National Archives says it recovered more than 700 pages of classified documents from former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida back in January. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports some of the documents were marked at the highest level of government classification. The details on the documents taken from Mar-a-Lago in January are contained in a letter sent by the National Archives to Trump's attorney, Evan Corcoran, on May 10th. It says some of the 700-plus classified documents were special access program materials, which are some of the most closely guarded secrets in the U.S. government. The National Archives makes clear that the Justice Department and intelligence agencies were deeply concerned about the documents that were recovered from Mar-a-Lago and the potential damage to national security posed by their mishandling. In addition to the materials collected in January, the FBI also collected more boxes of highly classified documents from Mar-a-Lago in a court-authorized search this month. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. More than a month after the United Nations and Turkey brokered a deal to facilitate safe grain exports from Ukrainian seaports, the country's agriculture ministry says they're still not able to hit their targets. From Ukraine, NPR's Yulian Haida has the latest. Ukraine's deputy minister for agriculture, Taras Vysotsky, says Ukraine has only shipped about a half million tons of grain this month so far, but expects that number to climb to about a million by September. Even still, that's just one-third of what Ukrainians had hoped they'd export per month. Ukrainian farmers say it's because shipping costs still remain too high to profit. The government is counting on that revenue to fuel its wartime economy, and several drought-stricken countries depend on Ukrainian grain for food. Over the weekend, the World Food Program said that the United States will subsidize Ukrainian grain exports destined for African countries. Yulian Haidan, NPR News, Kamenets Podilsky, Ukraine. A former Louisville police detective is pleading guilty to a federal charge for helping to falsify a search warrant that officers in 2020 used to raid Breonna Taylor's apartment where she was shot and killed. Goodlett entered her plea in federal court today. Roberta Roldan of member station WFPL reports on the Justice Department's investigation into 
Goodlett's and other officers' actions. What the DOJ has alleged is that Goodlett and her partner, Detective Joshua Jaynes, uh, knowingly put false information into the search warrant application for Breonna Taylor's home. Her and Jaynes wrote that Taylor's ex-boyfriend, uh, who was a subject of the narcotics investigation, had been getting packages delivered to her home. Specifically, they said that the information had been verified with the U.S. Postal Inspector, um, but the DOJ says essentially that that was all a lie. WFPL's Roberto Roldan reporting on Kelly Goodlett's case. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closes down 154 points. This is NPR. NPR News is brought to you in part by Providence Kodiak Island Counseling Center. For an appointment or more information, 481-2400. For KMXT, this is Terry Haynes. Kodiak's handbell choir, the Isle Bells, is about to begin their fall practice. It's their first regularly scheduled concert season since the pandemic. And as KMXT's Dylan Samard reports, the group's first performance is just around the corner. Elika Telnikoff is the director of Isle Bells. She says the seeds for the Isle Bells group were sown 30 years ago in a youth handbell choir that used to be on the island. Katelnikov played in the group, but later moved away. When she returned to Kodiak more than a decade ago, she started reconnecting with members of the old handbell choir, whose members were now well into adulthood. The group started practicing together again in late 2011. More than a dozen performers are part of Bells now. Katelnikov says that the Handbell Choir helps to meet a community need for live music performance. We are a place where people can make music together as a group, and Kodiak hasn't had a community band or orchestra for a long time, and we've been able to fill that gap for people craving musical fellowship and performance and that whole community that goes along with the nine months of making music together. The Isle Bell's first practice of the season is slated for next week. The weekly practices will get them ready for this year's holiday season, which culminates in Holiday Bells, an annual performance featuring mainly Christmas music. We have a whole diverse repertoire for spring performances as well that we really try to capture different techniques and different performance possibilities in the spring that we can't always do with the type of music we're playing in the holiday performances. COVID cut the Isle Bells 2020 season short, and they had to cancel the Holiday Bells performance. This season is planned to go on as normal. According to Katelnikov, performers won't be wearing masks for the first time since the start of the pandemic. The Isle Bells' first public performance for this year is soon. The group was invited to perform at the Kodiak Island Borough School District school year opening ceremony for teachers. They plan on playing two songs at the event this upcoming Thursday and are holding a small practice ahead of the event. In Kodiak, I'm Dylan Simard. Donlin Gold will soon face a financial business decision on whether or not to start construction of their proposed mine near Crooked Creek. In the face of growing regional resistance to the mine, the company hosted a tour of the site as part of what they call an emphasis on transparency. KYUK's Will McCarthy has more on that visit. So thanks for welcome to Donlin. Uh, After promising drilling results over the past year, 
Donlin is now moving toward an updated feasibility study for their mine. The next step after that would be to begin construction, which requires a $6 billion investment. Although the recent drilling has helped prove the value of the gold deposit, the mine has also faced a series of lawsuits and growing community opposition. Donlin and Chalista hope that informational tours like this one can help ease people's concerns and temper that resistance. Here's Dan Graham, the mine's general manager. So again, this is a safe and environmentally sound mine. A lot of the discourse on the project centers around what I call a false premise of an either-or proposition. Either you can have the mine and you're going to lose your way of life, or you can preserve your river and way of life, but you can't do that with the mine. To me, that's just false messaging for the project. The Donlin Gold Mine has been in the works for nearly 30 years, after the mine site area was selected by Chalista Native Corporation during the Alaska Native Claims Settlement. Chalista owns the subsurface mineral rights, and the nearby Village Corporation owns the land that the mine would operate on. Both of these corporations back the Donlin Project. For a time, many communities downriver did too. But over the past 10 years, a growing number of tribes and villages in the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta have raised concerns over the project's environmental impacts. In 2019, the Association of Village Council Presidents representing 56 tribes in the YK Delta passed a resolution opposing the mine, reversing a stance they had held since 2006. Chalista maintains that the majority of their shareholders still support the project. Here's Tom Leonard, Chalista's Vice President of Corporate Affairs. As uh, permits have been earned, things got a little bit more real. I think there it's natural that there's more concerns and fears that come into play. You're talking about emotions. And emotions aren't something you can argue with. Leonard says that the main thing shareholders want is more jobs and training opportunities for themselves and their family members. Donlin says they hire local people and shareholders as much as possible and currently claim a 70% shareholder hire rate. 60% of Shalista's shareholders live in the YK Delta, and the mine would employ 3,000 people during construction and 1,000 thereafter. Still, at least for one Shalista shareholder, Sophie Swope, all the talk of jobs feels like a big bait and switch. Swope was not on the tour. Jalista said it gives us hope for jobs and you know that kind of rubs me the wrong way because here we are in Bethel with YKHC our regional health corporation they have over 300 job openings <laughs> so there are plenty of jobs to be filled we just need to get people the education to do that. Swope is the director of Mother Kuskokwim a grassroots organization that opposes the Donlin mine. To Swope Shalista's mission should not be to force controversial projects on their shareholders. Swope says that there are serious concerns that the mine would destroy two salmon spawning tributaries, increase the amount of mercury deposited into the water, and create a tailings dam that holds toxic mining wastes which would have to be maintained in perpetuity. Corporate interests and tribal interests seem at odds in this native-owned project. We are very different from any other tribes in the country, being in Alaska, because we have the native corporations, and they are for-profit, so we're kind of put into this westernized state of mind and what we're supposed to be doing with our lands. The Mother Kuskokwim organization is circulating a petition opposing the mine and trying to gather shareholders representing 10% of Chalista's shares. If they're able to build that support, Chalista will have to decide whether or not to hold a special meeting on proceeding with the mine, although they're not obligated to. Opposition has also come from the environmental law firm Earth Justice, which has filed numerous lawsuits against Donlin on behalf of 13 tribes in the Delta. These lawsuits oppose a natural gas pipeline that would provide energy for the mine and allege that the project would violate state and federal water quality standards. Those lawsuits argue that the mine poses an existential threat to the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta region. 
I asked Christina Woolston, Domlin Gold's external affairs manager, if those lawsuits had impeded the mine's development timeline. No, I mean, frankly, it's part of the opposition process. Um, it's kind of a, what we see all over the world with organizations coming from the outside and opposing a project. Still, any of these lawsuits could delay, if not derail the project, and potentially make it less attractive for investors. Enrique Fernandez, the mine's environmental program manager, thinks opposition to the mine is less likely to grow if people are better informed about the safety measures and water monitoring they have in place. In his view, the mine would be a huge boon for the YK Delta. This is not just a job. It's something you want to see built. And this is one of the most you know, economically depressed areas in the U.S. And I know what a game change this could be for this region. But to Mother Kuskokwim Sophie Swope, who grew up here and wants to build her life around the future of the river, that strategy for uplifting the region just isn't worth the risk. There's so much more that we can do other than mining gold. The Ubik culture, we have kind of our pre-westernized attachment to the earth. And I feel like going in and pulling away the earth is just such a big disruption to everything that we have had for centuries. We have a livelihood, and it's fully based around the things that are naturally provided to us. And it's just very much worth saving. In Bethel, I'm Will McCarthy. As school starts in classrooms across Bristol Bay, students are getting to work. Each homework assignment, essay, and quiz a step toward earning their diplomas. Last year, a local principal made an unusual bet with a student to help motivate him to graduate. KDLG's Izzy Ross has the story of a senior who put in the work to get his diploma and shave his principal's head. Shannon Harvilla is the principal and assistant superintendent of the Bristol Bay Borough School District, which has around 100 students in kindergarten through 12th grade. Last year, he received a surprising request from a student. Junior Torino approached me at the beginning of the school year, semi-joking, you know, because I had long hair, uh, if he could shave it. Harvilla took Torino up on the bet. I let him know that if the entire senior class graduated this year, that he could have the honor of shaving my head. Sinen Torino, also called Junior, says he had a rough start to the school year. I was, like, pretty short on credit. And so didn't think I was going to graduate, but midway through the year, I started cranking out some more classes than I needed. Torino says his bet with Principal Harvilla motivated him to persevere through some tough parts of 12th grade. Oh, yeah, it pushed me a little bit more. I really wanted to see him bald, so it was really stressful. I, I had some doubts, but I didn't let that stop me from anything. I knew that he would stick to his word. I didn't expect a lot of the kids to come down and watch, but it was fun. I'm glad I got to do it in front of everybody and everyone got a chance to see. Torino graduated last spring along with 10 of his classmates. The students celebrated with the rest of the community. Harvilla says it was the first real in-person event the school hosted since the start of the pandemic two years earlier. And Torino spoke at graduation. He says he was nervous. I was one of the class speakers, so I had to talk about my whole class in front of everybody at graduation, so I was kind of nervous, but once I got up there, it was fun. There's definitely been some good times with them, and uh, it's going to be different, but everyone's going to go their separate ways, and maybe we'll stay connected somehow. 
Afterward, he made one last trip to school to shave Harvilla's head in front of the student body. Harvilla says it was worth it. I knew that he would have to put in extra work in order to graduate, and I knew that any bit of motivation we could provide as adults would help him get to his goal of graduating. Now Torino's working at the borough dock. The borough's 2022 school year starts this week. No word yet on what Harvilla plans to do if all the seniors graduate this spring. In Dillingham, I'm Izzy Ross. The end of a two-year federal free school lunch program is causing confusion and stress among students and parents in the Kenai Peninsula Borough School District. Free and reduced-fee lunches are still available at district schools, but the transition back from the universal free lunch program has not been without its challenges. District officials are reminding parents that free and reduced-fee lunches are still available to families with certain income restraints. KDLL's Riley Board has this story. Before the pandemic, students who fell into certain income categories were eligible for free and reduced lunch at school. But over the past two years, COVID-19 relief money from the United States Department of Agriculture has supported free lunches for all students at the district schools. According to Kevin Lyon, Director of Planning and Operations for the district, that means schools haven't collected any money from students for food in two years. He explained while the program was running, the district provided somewhere around 6,000 free meals a day. He said at some schools, that meant every single student was taking advantage of the free lunches. We were serving a lot of kids. We served a lot of meals. Over the summer, that program came to an end. At that time, the district announced the end of the Universal Free Lunch Program and encouraged parents to fill out an online application to request free or reduced lunch if they qualified for it. But word didn't make it to everyone in the district. Recent posts on Facebook falsely suggested it was the district that had removed the free lunch program, not the federal government, and community members chided the district for their failure to support the students. Nathan Erfurth, president of the local teachers' union, says he first heard about the issue when he got an email from his kindergartner's school. The school sent out an email notifying parents that 60 students at the school uh, were not prepared to have lunch today, Um, therefore you need to get your pay accounts funded, you need to make sure that you've got your free and reduced lunch paperwork completed, that takes time to process, or else kids will have to be denied lunch. I thought that was quite a large number of students. After several schools sent out similar announcements, Erfurth says he saw pushback and confusion from parents and school employees on social media. He says the miscommunication comes down to a couple of key factors. One was confusion over the application timeline for the lunch program. Uh, Typically, parents who are on the free and reduced lunch program have a month between when school starts, roughly a month between when school starts and when their last year's application uh, expires. So that means that there's a couple of weeks where they've got their kids in school and the school can remind them, you need to fill out this form. However, because the universal free lunch program has been in place for the past two years, Erfurth says no such rollover grace period existed. Erfurth says the second issue is that the district has moved to a new, entirely online application for free and reduced lunch. He says in past years, that application went home in an introductory packet to parents at the beginning of the year. This year, the form was not included in the packet. Erfurth says he was struck by the fact that students are only allowed to charge, that is, incur debt for lunch, for up to two days of meals. 
On top of that, students are only allowed to do these charges if their parents have filled out an opt-in form in advance. Students cannot charge any further meals until the amount is paid back. We know food is at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. Everyone has to eat to be able to do anything beyond that. You have to be able to have a calm stomach if you're going to learn. And so that's a fundamental function that our schools serve these days. Lyon says the charge policy exists so parents know how many meals their students are getting from the school. The district also offers an option where parents can be notified if their students' balance drops to a certain low level. We've got all kinds of things that that we do to make sure the kids are fed because if the kids are fed, then they do better in school. Um, But we also want to work with their parents so that they're able to, um, you know, be in charge of what their child does. We don't want them charging up a, a bill that mom and dad didn't even know about. Lyon explains that to allow parents to readjust to the old school nutrition system, the credit option has been extended until September 6th. He says that the schools have sent out notices to parents after many students showed up to school on the first day expecting lunch to be free. The free and reduced lunch application can be filled out at any point in the year. This year, for students approved for free and reduced meals, breakfast will be free and lunch will be 40 cents. In Kenai, I'm Riley Board. Read Diverse, Read Indie on Insight Daily Radio. Conversations with today's most influential authors from the world of independent publishing. The controversial suspense filled When Her Hand Moves by author Omar Imadi consists of three thrilling novellas, including the mysterious disappearance of a Syrian woman, a Syrian professor on the run as he finds himself caught in an erotic trifecta, and the frantic quest of an Oxford scholar to decipher an ancient manuscript. Combining the sensual and the sacred, the intellectual and the imaginary, the divine and the dangerous, we spoke with him about this fascinating book. I was just having a conversation about some of the content books. This friend of mine was saying that uh, you share a lot of controversial things, but I've seen and encountered works that are more controversial than yours in terms of your take on Islam, for example, or on uh, various issues related to the Middle East. But then he said, but you're far more dangerous. And I say, why is that? He said, because you're speaking from the inside. Usually the hostile voices are from the outside in the sense that they've completely rejected the narrative. You don't reject the narrative. You're, You're from within. You clearly have faith. You clearly are respectful, but you clearly have a very different take on fundamental issues that no one approaches from the inside. So you see, once again, this this uh, idea of an outsider perpetuates itself somehow. Yes, it's not that I like it, but I I've come to to to, to accept it as inevitable. That's author Omar Imadi on when her hand moves, which has just been released. Read Diverse, Read Indie is presented by the Independent Book Publishers Association. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Good afternoon, and welcome to your Island Messenger for Tuesday. It is the 23rd day of August, the year 2022. The sun rose today at 6.51. It will set again at 9.31. That will give us 14 hours and 40 minutes of daylight 
a loss of 4 minutes and 48 seconds compared to yesterday. A record low for this date was 39 degrees, that was set in 1969, and a record high was 78, set in 1948. Currently 56 degrees out at the airport under overcast skies. They have 93% humidity, east winds to 14 miles per hour and 8 miles of visibility. The weather service is calling for scattered showers for the rest of the afternoon, cloudy skies, high near 56, southeast winds to 15, gusting to 20. Rain tonight with a low around 52, east winds to 10, and rain is likely up until 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, followed by showers until 11 a.m., cloudy skies tomorrow with a high near 59, calm winds tomorrow, scattered showers on Wednesday night, mainly before 11 p.m., mostly cloudy on Wednesday night, and partly sunny on Thursday. We have a high tide coming up here this afternoon at 1.38 p.m. on the east side. That will be a 6.1-foot tide. That will be followed by a low tide at 6.23 this evening of 3.7 feet. Over on the west side, you have a high tide coming up at 1.53 this afternoon, a 10.2-foot tide in Larson Bay. That will be followed by a low tide at 7.15 p.m. of 5.1 feet. Well, let's see what the Alaska Department of Fish and Game has to say. Hello, this is the Alaska Department of Fish and Game in Kodiak with Kodiak Commercial Salmon Fishery Advisory Announcement number 29, date issued 10 a.m. on August 22nd. There will be a 48-hour extension to the current commercial salmon fishing period from 6 p.m. Monday, August 22nd, until 6 p.m. Wednesday, August 24th in the following areas. In the central and north cape sections of the northwest Kodiak District and the Isuit and southwest of Fognac sections of the Fognac District. Closed waters are expanded until 6 p.m. Wednesday, August 24th in Molina Creek to consist of all the waters within one half nautical mile of the beach near the stream terminus of Molina Creek, stream number 251105, between 58 degrees 10 north latitude and 58 degrees 11 north latitude. The following areas will close at 6 p.m. Monday, August 22nd. The Duck Bay, Outer Katoy Bay, Raspberry Strait, southeast of Fognac and northeast of Fognac sections of the Fognac District, the east side Kodiak District, except for the inner Ugak and outer Ugak Bay sections, remain closed. The Cape Alatak, Humpy Deadman, Alatak Bay, Mosier Bay, and Olga Bay sections of the Alatak District, the outer Iacoulik section of the southwest Kodiak District, and the Cape Igvac, Wide Bay, Olinchak Bay, Katmai, and Dakovac Bay sections of the mainland district. Fishermen are reminded that until further notice in that portion of the northwest and southwest Kodiak district south of the latitude of Cape Kuliak, king salmon 28 inches or greater in length may not be retained by purse and gear in the commercial fishery and must be returned to the water unharmed. Other closed waters are shown in the Kodiak area salmon statistical chart and detailed in commercial salmon fishing regulations. And statistical charts, harvest strategies, and commercial salmon fishing regulations are available at the Kodiak Fishing Game office. And, of course, the most recent salmon fishery information may be obtained by calling the department's 24-hour recordophone at 486-4559. Thank you very much. Good luck fishing. And this is the Alaska Department of Fishing Game. And, Mariners, here's your forecast for Marmot Island to Sitkin at Kodiak's east side offshore. Small craft advisory today, southeast 20, seas to 8 feet. East 20 tonight, seas to 6 feet. And variable 10 tomorrow, seas to 5 feet. Over in the Shellacoff Strait, east 20 today, seas to 5 feet. For tomorrow, northeast 15, seas to 4 feet. And for tomorrow night, variable 10, seas to 2 feet.
They are saying that Thursday through Friday in the Shelikov we'll see southwest 20 seas to 5 feet. Quick program note. Tune in to the Corner Studio at 9 a.m. tomorrow, right after the Island Messenger. Representatives from the Kodiak Community Foundation and Kodiak Arts Council will meet with Jared Griffin at KMXT's Corner Studio to talk about Pick, Click, Give, the importance of nonprofits to Kodiak, and the downtown block party on September 10th. See you at the corner. That's tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. The Kodiak City Council will be having a work session tonight. They will also be having a regular meeting on Thursday night. Both meetings are occurring at 7.30 p.m. and will be in the Kodiak Public Library, and they are both open to the public. Public members are also encouraged to tune in to KMXT at 100.1 FM to listen. The meetings will also be web-streamed, and that link as well as meeting packets are available at the City of Kodiak website. If you have more questions, contact the City Clerk at 907-486-8636. This Friday at the Library, 10 a.m., the Pollination Garden Tour. So come in at 10 a.m., tour the Pollination Garden at the Kodiak Public Library. All are invited to the Lutic Museum's annual meeting and open house. That's from 1 to 3 p.m. on Saturday. That's happening at the Alutic Museum. The board will meet from 1 p.m. to 1.30, followed by the open house till 3 p.m. Executive Director April Lactonin Counselor will provide presentations on recent projects and museum renovation plans during the board meeting. After the meeting, stay for the open house to see artifacts up close, explore some educational materials, enjoy museum exhibits, and meet the full staff to ask questions about their work. It's also a great opportunity to see the headdress and masks that are on loan from France before they have to go back. Again, that's starting at 1 p.m. Saturday at the Lutic Museum. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT three times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., during the midday report at 12.20, and in the evening at 7 o'clock. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org.